Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Kevin, on Wednesday, we lost a member of the Top Chef community. Uh, Floyd Cardoz passed away after a battle with COVID-19. Cardoz, you might remember, was the winner of Top Chef Masters back in 2011, season three. With a highly successful uh, restaurant called Tabla, Cardoz was the first Indian-born and raised chef to lead an influential New York City kitchen, according to the New York Times. 
1999, writing for the New York Times, Ruth Reichel wrote a glowing review of Tabla, Chef Cardoza's restaurant he opened up with Danny Meyer. She wrote, yes, I thought, this is what I've been waiting for. This is American food viewed through a kaleidoscope of Indian spices. So if the name Ruth Reichel is familiar, that is the guest judge from this week's episode of Top Chef. So on Wednesday, Padma uh, on her Twitter account had this to say about Floyd. Floyd Cardoz made us all so proud. Nobody who lived in New York in the early aughts could forget how delicious and packed Tabla always was. He had an impish smile, an innate need to make those around him happy, and a delicious touch. This is a huge loss, not only for the professional food world, but for Indians everywhere. My heart goes out to his wife, Barca, and their whole family. Rest in peace, Floyd. So Kevin, in honor of Cardoza's enduring smile, let's have some fun. is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I am Tom Haberstrom. Tom, this was sort of a love letter, a culinary love letter to Los Angeles, the city I've lived and eaten in for the last 23 years. Uh, I was I was very, very absorbed in this. And like all these places, some of which I go quite, some of to which I go quite frequently, there's some really good food. I mean, that, that was sort of the thing. Um, Jonathan Gold is a legend. His origin story is famous among Angelinos who love food and, frankly, people nationally. He was a guy who had a job working just, I think, at a legal journal or a legal newspaper, worked downtown and decided on a whim one day, you know what? I'm going to eat at every single restaurant on Pico Boulevard as long as it takes me. And just so people know, Pico Boulevard runs from downtown Los Angeles all the way to the beach. So you were talking about miles and miles of just commercial real estate. So we're talking – I can't even fathom the number of restaurants, but that was his thing. He was going to eat it like every taqueria, uh, every kosher joint through Pico Robertson, every every Japanese place, et cetera, et cetera. And that is what launched not only his career, Tom, but a new kind of food criticism. There was a time in this country – 30, 35, 40 years ago where there were only certain kinds of restaurants with certain kinds of pedigrees that got reviews. Mm. The idea that you would review, like would employ real critique and, and real criticism on a pupuseria was just nothing anybody ever did. A food truck. Right. I, I mean the, the idea that you would – that food criticism was reserved for this kind of food over here and this other kind of food over here. Hey. Have fun, uh, by all means partake, but it wasn't really integrated into food criticism. And that's what Gold did. And I think when when kind of people who may not have be from Los Angeles or, or that matter not kind of know the criticism world, so like, well, why is this episode obsessed with this guy? Isn't this just enough already? I, I just don't think you can overstate Gold's influence on the entire food world and particularly here in Los Angeles. Counterintelligence a, a compendium of of many of his reviews that came out, I think in like 99, 2000. That thing was like riding around in my car for 10 years. <laughs> I mean, I, I literally like, like that was my, not my guidebook to LA food, my guidebook to Los Angeles altogether. So I, I love this episode. And that, that is more my sort of opening uh, shot 
in in uh, in honor of gold. Yeah, Anthony Bourdain once described gold as the first guy to change the focus from white tablecloth restaurants to really cool little places in strip malls. And I don't know if Anthony Bourdain has the career he has on TV without Jonathan Gold. The idea that you could learn about culture and communities and traditions, um, ethnicities, just by going to eat at their restaurants, that's very much a Jonathan Gold spirit, right? Yeah, and I and one of the things that I found really heartening, and I, I literally got a lump in my throat because I, I love Meals by Janae. I think I went my, on my like fourth date with Eric to Meals by Janae. And I love that place. And, and to watch – and I think it's Janae. I, mean, I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Um, just kind of become overcome with emotion, just retelling sort of the, the moment at which Gold sort of recognized that as the leading Ethiopian place in town in a, in a really vibrant Ethiopian community next to Washington, D.C. Um, I, I think Los Angeles has the second largest Ethiopian community. And, and that little stretch on Fairfax between um, Olympic and Pico is just just a wonderful – it's where I go to buy Ethiopian groceries, and, and if you go to Meals by Janae, it's wonderful. But just kind of watching her overcome, um, watching the owner of Mayura talk about it. It's just like, you know, we live in this weird era where, uh, like, you know, people criticize the Columbusing of food or, or somehow cultural appropriation or, or there, there's something cheapening about, you know, assembling a list of places that might not not might not otherwise get recognized Um or, or might not otherwise even people like you or me be aware about uh, that somehow that, that it's, that it's cheapening or, or, or a certain brand of appropriation. I've always taken offense to that because like when you go to these places, um, you, you, these are working families that are running restaurants whose margins are impossible. I mean to make it as a restaurant tour, particularly one that serves that isn't getting $38 a plate. Is, is just impossible. My, my family ran the Jewish deli in Atlanta, like the definitive Jewish deli for 60 years. And like they were just always scrapping. Um, so it was just really cool to have gold celebrated. Forget the chefs. Like my favorite moments of the show were gold being celebrated by the restaurant tours themselves um, and, and just being just so moved by the recognition that gold gave me. And I think Los Angeles as a city needs someone like gold because – it's so hard to go to all the different parts of Los Angeles because it's such a sprawling city and there's so many different corners of the city in ways that New York City isn't. You know, like if you if you wanted to go eat uh, in Koreatown or have have a meal uh, in different parts, you just hop in hop in a subway and you're there, right? In Los Angeles, you have to put in work. You have to get in your car and drive and sit in traffic and find that strip mall. And so the idea of gold giving you this little guidebook, this map, this little, uh, you know, a, a map of exploration for Los Angeles, it's not an easy thing to do. And so for him, uh, I, I, especially, I thought of you, Kevin, when watching this episode of the Ethiopian meal because – we have shared an Ethiopian meal uh, over in Boston together, and that is a meal of love. Like an Ethiopian traditional meal is not like your your typical meals. You get dirty, no. you get into it, and that is very much the spirit of Jonathan Gold. Is that it is love, it is communal, and it is uh, an experience. Right. I mean, and what I what I love about Gold is first of all, yeah, Ethiopian is my favorite, as you know, because you know I have a long standing opposition to utensils in general. Um, so that there's that, but but gold kind of created a world where you're gonna come home for dinner with some oil on your shirt, you know, with a little splatter, with with a stain, and and I and I kind of 
and you're absolutely right. There's so many of us who kind of learned the city through kind of gold's roadmaps, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it is it like I became familiar with with you know having arrived in L.A. I, I wasn't overly familiar with the San Gabriel Valley. I mean, I knew it on a map, but I wasn't I, I wasn't familiar with the communities that were that were there. And it is a place because, as you say, Los Angeles is really tough to tackle. You know, you you live it. You moved to New York. And I remember I do this when I was in college. Like you can walk Broadway on a Sunday morning. Like I would literally walk from campus on 116th Street down to uh, the uh, 31 Division Street dim sum house. So it would like take me an hour, 45 minutes, two hours, and I would do it. Um, but Los Angeles, you got to kind of – you're not going to – as you say, you kind of need a little bit of a roadmap. You, you, these nooks and crannies exist in shopping malls, and, and they're at lush, kind of indistinguishable for one another. And – and so it, in many ways, so many of us discovered the city itself through the culinary trail. It wasn't, oh, okay, let's go to this neighborhood and we'll find some place to eat. It's, hey, I don't know a hell of a lot about Alhambra. You know, why don't we go to this Wighorn restaurant on on, on New Avenue? Um, or, or why don't we go, uh, you know, I've heard a lot about Golden Deli, but I've never been. Um, and then kind of use that as a perch from which to do, explore the city. Did, anyway, did you did you now that we can get into the the actual episode here? Did you um, think that there was going to be a Jonathan Gold episode did, were, when you were when you found out that this was going to be an LA themed season? Did that pop in your head of like, oh, are we going to get a Jonathan Gold episode, or were you like pleasantly surprised? Oh, yes, we get a Gold tribute episode. Like, actually, I think if you'd asked me, I would said, oh yeah, that would have made sense, but it didn't even occur to me. Yeah, and then. And it's right off the bat. I mean, there's a reason, again, you, you do episode two. This wasn't episode seven or eight. Like, you can't even really do a competition show, uh, a culinary competition show in Los Angeles without gold, particularly since he's passed away. I mean, I, I think that's the other thing is like he died, I think it was 2017. So, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's different when, when there's a living soul. That, that's one thing, but, but he, he, he died suddenly and just left this huge gaping hole. Um, and uh, anyway, so so that's it. And so there we go. We, we get to the episode. Uh, I, I think the chefs are as overcome as we are. And they split up into four groups, uh, kind of going into four different directions around Los Angeles. I can't tell you, Tom, what a, what a fun thing it was to watch like <laughs> them show up at the Mariscos Yaliscos. I've got to take you for the deep fried shrimp taco at Mariscos Yalisco. That is one of my favorite bites. Oh, can I town. also get the pile of octopus too? Yeah, you can. I mean, it is it is a wonderful place, and again, it's down there. Like I think it's it's you know an East Olympic essentially. Um, they had jitlada, um, which they have one of my other favorite dishes in Los Angeles, the morning glory salad. Um, the meals by Janae, the shiro there is wonderful. She does this lamb stew that I love. Um, and then Eric and I, one of our favorite restaurants, kind of more upscale, is like we go to Republic and we get the Dover sole. Like it is one of our favorite plates, um, collectively in Los Angeles. So it was just so fun to oh, see man. these places. It must have been and just so that, yeah, it must have been just so much fun for you to watch. Yeah. By the way, I will say I've had good, not great meals at Lhasa, which ended up being an inspiration I think, for that entire group, the Filipino place. Mm-hmm. Though there's so much great Filipino food in town, and um, and there were some great. Just they did they do a, a, a beef tartare at Lhasa that I really really loved. But um, so yeah, so you had ha- you had a floor of the group going to kind of the downtown corridor, which was you know sort of Chinatown, and then in Rust. Downtown, you had the East LA, which was actually really um, sort of uh, the San Gabriel Valley plus Marisco Uh You had the West Side, and then you had the Hollywood Group. And the West Side did Miura, 
in a couple places over there. And then you had sort of the, the Republic was sort of the, the beachhead uh, for the Hollywood gang and, and along with Jitlada. All right. Um, so you're you're so- a chef. OK, you're top chef competing right now, Kevin. They give you four groups here. East L.A., West L.A., Hollywood and downtown. Power rank me those four for you. Well, it's tough. I mean, East Side, I mean, San Gabriel Valley is is a miracle. Like like the San Gabriel, there's no place like the San Gabriel Valley. I mean, you're just talking about the cradle of Asian food in North America. You know, now people in Vancouver might have something to say about that, um, and possibly San Francisco, but but it is just I mean, you're talking about miles and miles. I mean, going down Valley Boulevard, going down Las Tunas, going just you know, Atlantic into Maine along um, you know, going Garvey when you go south of the 10 in Monterey Park. Like, like there's no place like it. Now, my issue is, Tom, with each passing year, do you know about my spicy issue right now? No. All right, so I used to eat spicy food all the time with no consequence. I, I mean, moving to New York in 18, like we'd go to East 6th Street, we'd eat a lot of Indian food. I was like anybody else who, who loves world cuisine. I like a little heat. I like challenging myself. When I turned 30, it started to become an issue where like my colon was set on fire <laughs> after like going to my favorite Thai restaurant in Los Angeles, which is Yai. And and then like, okay, I can deal with this a little bit. Then it was like, okay, I can only deal with this if I have 24 hours to recuperate. Like I'm not leaving the house the next day. And lately, the last three years, if I even have a hint of a Thai chili, it's not that my scalp gets a little sweaty. Like they have to bring out a towel from the <laughs> kitchen. And this is this is now only the last three or four years. Like it's gone progressively bad, and I don't have an explanation. And if one of our listeners has an explanation, like a biochemical explanation, or if there's something I can take before going to Chengdu Taste, I would love to know it because I love spicy food. It fucking hates me with like the heat <laughs> of a thousand suns, quite literally, and it's really impeding my eating. Like I couldn't have gone to that with I could not have gone with Melissa. And, and and that gang to those places and even Marisco Yaliscos like they have this um they have this great other tostada what the hell is it called the dynamite I think and it's just too spicy for me like there's now food that is literally too spicy for me and and it I mean literally it's it's like worse than Albert Brooks in broadcast news it is I'm not talking like a little a little little couple beads of sweat on the scalp I'm talking about like like people are afraid I'm having a heart attack so. Full disclosure, this is not a plug for ALS Piper Challenge for you to do it at home. But if you were to – That's why I just sent you the money, dude. I just sent you the money. If you were to do the ALS Pepper Challenge, which I started a couple years ago in honor of my mom who is uh, who's battling ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, we learned some things about it. One, habaneros are really fucking hot. Okay, habaneros are like 100 times hotter than a jalapeno. By the way, don't let me tell you about the time I accidentally rubbed my eyes after cooking with habaneros. Got to be careful. Got to be careful with the habanero, especially. Man, that's like that's like a jalapeno on steroids on top of steroids. So one thing we learned, Kevin, is that people are being misled. There's myths about the antidote to spice. People think you have to drink milk. People think it's bread. But actually, scientifically – the thing that seems to biologically uh, cap those receptors uh, that that create that the beads of sweat on your head, or at least uh, the, the fire breathing tongue of yours, the the antidote to that is citrus. So if you take like a shot of or a, a squeeze of lime uh, or lemon uh, before or after after. Okay. Um, it it kind of mutes it a little bit. So people at home, if you're eating something super spicy, and maybe this is why there's a lot of citrus in uh, Indian food or, or Mexican food or anything that has a lot of chilies in it, 
um, because it does ha- – it's not going to completely numb it. This is this is like an icy hot on a sore calf, okay? It is going to be able to numb it somewhat, way more than milk. Actually, milk exacerbates the problem. So for those who are at home who are watching this episode or deciding, uh, you know what? I'm going to go to that that Thai restaurant tonight or, or I'm going to go get that habanero uh, salsa. Make sure you have a lime on hand just in case you take a tequila shot and then you have something spicy. You can finish it with a nice wedge of, wine, of, of lime. So – um, Kevin, back to this episode. So Nini's super adorable in the back with the with the car full of dads. Uh, well, we're gonna get to Nini. Yeah, and and the four teams, I guess. Uh, there's Melissa, Lisa, Karen. The other team is Eric, Kevin, and but they're not they're not teams, right? They're they're pods. pods. Yes, they're not they're not in competition. They are merely uh they are merely uh common uh, fellow explorers. Yes. Fellow travelers. Yes, sailors uh going across the the interstates. Yes, Eric, Kevin, Angelo, Gregory, Jen, Steph, Leanne, uh and then also finishing up Nini, Brian, Brian and Jamie. So, take us through. Right. There's no quick fire because they want to give plenty of time on the hour to the the, the culinary exploration of Los Angeles. I think a couple things happened here. Um, I think there's such a thing as too much inspiration. I think the the tour was so rich and so deep and covered so many different kind of culinary bases. You know, I mean, you had Filipino food on top of Italian food on top of it, that I think a lot of these chefs, because I think, A, the, the combination of pressure to pay homage to gold, I think B, 200 people, which it can be an issue as we've seen on this show time and time again. And C, I just think it was information overload. I think they tried – they thought too hard. I love this and Because theory. I think there were – yeah, I mean I just think – by the way, there were clearly some great dishes, but there were a lot of issues. And I do and, – and this is actually – this was Eric's theory kind of watching it that, that like there's such a thing as too much inspiration rather than just saying, you know what? Here's a protein. Here's a flavor. Here's sort of a, a theme that I grasp. I'm just going to do a thing. And I, and I think some did. I mean, I think Brian Voltaggio got the challenge. I think Gregory, though it might not have been his best food, got the challenge. Um, I, I think I think kind of Jen got the challenge. Uh, those weren't necessarily the winners, but I think that there was just uh, Lisa got the challenge. But I, I think there was sort of this, I got to do kind of street food, but I got to pay homage to this thing. And then I yep. also did 200 people. And and I think some of the chefs really struggled for that reason. And um, so you, you, you want you want to go through it? Um, yeah. So I, you know, on that on that note, I think I think this is this was surprising to me that. Um, I just want to talk about Brian Voltaggio for a second here. Yeah. The idea of having all of these different uh, culinary influences after a day of eating at all these amazing restaurants. And by the way, Kevin, how many do you think of these chefs know the chefs at these behind these restaurants? So you're almost feeling like you have to pay homage to those chefs behind the scenes because, hey, that's my buddy. Like, I'd ima- well, I don't know. I mean, because the one thing about I would say this, there's sort of a conventional culinary community, the kind of the James Beard people and, and frankly, like chefs sort of that. I mean, what I think makes these places so special, like I remember going in, um, you know, I remember going to Philadelphia and going to that place that had gotten the uh, Hardina. 
So I was just going to be there. There's an Indonesian family-run restaurant that is like the size of a postage stamp in Philadelphia. And they got like the – I forget what the award is that beer dispenses, but it's sort of to a – it's not to though these these technical chefs who come through the system. It's for a family kind of heritage place. And I was in there a few months after they got the award and then the young woman in the family who kind of works the front of – not in the front of the house, works the cashier because um, you order at the, at the, at the, at the kind of – at, at the register yeah. – I said, congratulations. And she's like, thank you. She's like, you know, it's funny. We didn't know what that was. Right. Like, like the, mm. I, I think, you know, and so I think with a lot of, um, a, a lot of the chefs, I mean, these are family run places and it's not like these are folks who came up through the culinary farm system as you, yeah. you, you know, to use a, a parallel from sports. So I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Russ Blue, there were, there were a few, uh, you know, I think the Lhasa guys kind of, um, have, uh, you know, some relationship but I, I think, you know, many of the places, like it's possible, I don't know, maybe they know the Shangdu place. I, mean, I suspect Melissa might. I mean, she grew up in, in that neighborhood, I think. But um, there might be a I, little I bit actually, of that. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe the Mayura couple, you know, is part of the culinary community in Los Angeles. Probably me now, but I don't know that they sort of came up through the sort of young 20 something, you know, our, my class of, of chefs around the country who, you know, essentially are aspiring to similar goals. So Brian Voltaggio, um, he goes with the Filipino dish that he kind of doesn't know what he's doing. Like he he's eaten at Filipino restaurants before. But this brings us back to one of the age-old questions in Top Chef competition, right? We talked about a bunch on the show. Do you go and cook your food that you know, a dish that you know? Because in this episode, since you're you're pulling from so many different strings – the idea could be, the strategy might be, hey, I'm going to take a protein from this meal that I had and I'm going to do a dish. Like you said, a dish that I know I can nail versus, man, that Filipino restaurant was amazing. I don't really cook much Filipino food, but I'm going to go for it on this on this dish. And I thought that was a risk by Brian Voltaggio and it paid off big time. What do you think? I mean, so I have a lot to say about Voltaggio in this episode. I mean, I know he didn't win. But in, in in some ways, he was as impressive for this reason. One is I think he he found the sweet spot in in the in the dialectic you're talking about, right? Like Voltaggio knows great technical cooking. He knows how to put components on a dish, and there's a certain, as I think Gail said, a refinement to his work. But he also wants to pay homage, right? You don't have to go full. You don't have to do pan seat if you're doing Filipino food. You know, take a a protein that you know how to cook with a short rib. And then just, I think in terms of flavor profile, you know, Filipino has a lot of kind of tangy sourness in, in a way, um, you know, a lot of black pepper. I mean, like, like I think he did that and then, okay, I, I, now I know also, I don't care what you're cooking. Every dish and every culture needs balance. So, okay, there's a certain richness to this. I'm doing charred eggplant puree. How about some fermented radish? You're still kind of keeping in the Asian arena. But you're providing sort of the hit you need against the richness, um, yet still kind of conforming to the overall thing. So I, I thought he was good. The other thing I really liked about him was there were a lot of snacks, but there weren't a lot of plates. Yep. yep. He made a dish. There was a lot of street. And again, I, I, no one lo- I love street food as much as anybody. But there were a lot of snacks. A lot of bites. A lot of bites. A lot of, oh, my play on nachos or my – he did a plate. He assembled an essentially an entree. Like you could go into a restaurant, get short ribs with charred eggplant puree, 
fermented radish and butternut squash vinaigrette. That's a and meal. That is a that is a meal. That is a plate you would expect on the main entree list at a place you love. Um, and I and I thought that that was, you know, I won't say it was bold. I mean, I, I, I'm surprised more chefs didn't kind of try playing it that way, play homage, but still kind of come up with something fully formed rather than a bite or a snack, which is great, but it's not going to win you. Where like where do we want to go here? Do we want to go plate by plate, dish by dish? Um, how do we want to do this? Because man, there's right, a so lot who, of good food here. All right, so there were some interesting things I think we saw even starting at the Whole Foods. Like like we had a little. There was a sense of foreboding with Eric. Right, he wants to do his duck. They don't have duck, or Lisa gets the last Lisa duck. Gets I think actually, Jamie had some duck too, but I I think he needed a full duck. Lisa got it first. He recovers, goes with scallop, and he's going to do. Um, you know, he, he's going to kind of do East African profiles. He's going to do a braised cabbage and scallop. Eric, that was Eric needs Eric needs to get some more speed. This is the second episode, two for two, where he gets boxed out on one of his ingredients. Come on, Eric. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You're right. The second week in a row where he didn't really procure what he wanted yes. to from, from the cupboard slash deli counter or whatever, that butcher counter or whatever. So um, I think there were some other interesting things like um, – you know, Brian and Melissa both doing beef tartare, which I think is actually a smart way to go for a 200-person thing. And also, you know, the nice thing about beef tartare is it's almost like a pair of khakis. You want a little Szechuan spice, you do it with Szechuan spice. You want to, you want it to be uh, the kimchi vinaigrette, you can go that way. Uh, you, you like your fermented egg yolk from the from the Filipino place, you can throw that in there, right? Because what's better in a beef tartare than an egg yolk, right? Um you saw Angelo be over-inspired. He just gets in his head. Yep. It's it's all turmeric all the time. He's going to do that coconut broth. Um, you know, Stephanie, and it's so funny because I I actually said it in the thing. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you no. never cook Indian food for Padma. Uh, and she knew it the minute she realized it. But like that two is just a, it's like flatbread and then uh, cooking Indian food for Padma. Right. And by the way, like, and you know, I'm very bullish on Stephanie, though I, I, this this week definitely gave me a pass. But like, Flat, non, really, really, you're going to make, like, like, don't be a bread maker. Don't, no one is, has anyone ever won a challenge because Tom and Padma said, Wow, this gyro oh, is just delicious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, just stay away. Like, it's not going to win you anything. It's, especially for 200 people, it's only going to either be overly soggy or overly dry or not really do anything for the dish. And, and I just, like, it's just – again, there are some times where you, you see the air surface before it even implodes, and, and that was another one of those things. Kevin, um, Kevin, on this, on this, I had to ask you, okay, what is the thing that Padma or Tom, a question they give you that sends the most shivers down your spine? So when Tom asks Steph, do you cook a lot of Indian at home? That question, whether you do or not, that question is the kiss of death. So I feel like if I got that question, I don't know how I would answer it. You would be like, uh, if you did cook a lot of Indian at home, you might look like an idiot because he is asking that question for a reason. He's asking it because usually nine times out of 10, you are not doing that authentically. You're not doing that very well. And the other question that Tom gave, uh, was you think you actually did that? I forget what it was, but there was a a moment where he asked a, sh- a chef was like, "Oh, I prepared oh, it yeah, this who way." Was it? Who was it? Who was it? 
And he goes, um, do you think you actually did that? That's another just a horrifying question from Tom. So up there with uh, – did you taste this up food? there with was there a pastry chef in the back? <laughs> there's so many like man, there's so many lines. Oh, we'll get to Ruth Reichel. Oh in man, second. she just she, We'll get to Ruth Reichel. But Tom, in a particularly in this one, there were so many throwback lines from past chef seasons where you just wanted to curl up in the fetal position and just disappear. Because do you cook a lot of Indian food at home? I bet Steph, when she was asked that, just wanted to just wanted to vanish. Um, I, I will say that uh, the other one – I mean Tom is actually a master of the loaded question. Like you just know – as you said, Tom, he's going to come into a kitchen, look over your shoulder and say, oh, do you always not seed the squash before you prepare it? <laughs> like like it's just – you're going to – it is a it is a almost 94 percent guarantee that the loaded question is going to prove fatal in some form or fashion. Have you used chicken um, stock before with this dish? <laughs> yes. Um, do you always scratch your ass before putting it back your your hand back in the you know in the bowl? So uh, there were some interesting things. So the um, there were a couple of things that I I am shocked that Lee. Let's go one by one. Like yeah. so, I was shocked Lee ended up on the bottom. Like to me, the only time fish and cheese ever works is like a really good tuna melt. I mean, I'm trying to. I mean, obviously, salmon and cream cheese is a famous yeah. combo. So I, maybe I shouldn't say that, but like I was just sure that the Hayashi. Um, and, it was and all over the can, place. I don't know. Leanne's, Leanne's, I felt like she was in, in your, in your, uh, preface here on this, this particular challenge where you have so many, you have to draw from so many different inspirations. I feel like that might have been information overload for, oh, oh by the way, Shunji is my favorite sushi place in Los Angeles. Um, what, what's great about Shunji is, um, it, it's like there's not even a sign. It just says Japanese food. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's a little, little place. And I've, um, I've been there with, uh, Many of our, I've taken many, many of our ESPN colleagues um, back in the day. Um, by the way, so if, if there are um, Japanese specialists in our audience, I was a little confused with Leanne because Hayashi, I thought, was like a, a Japanese beef fried rice. And I didn't see that in the bowl. I was just curious that I, maybe I don't know what Hayashi is, and I'm, it's very possible. Uh, but with um, mozzarella. Yeah, I was shocked. With mozzarella, I was shocked, shocked she didn't end up at the bottom. I was like, Crab and cheese and plums. No, this is not going to work. Um, do you know who got the least kind of attention? And actually, um, your your boy Jamie. Like they spent the least amount of time with him than any of the other thirteen chefs. He does a classic Los Angeles staple, which is the elevated street taco. Yep. Um, I think there are probably cynics in Los Angeles now who are God. If I have one more duck mole taco with the crema, I love this genre of food. Um, Gorilla Tacos does it well. Guisados is one of my favorite places in town. There are so many of them now that I think there is a law of diminishing returns and and uh, people roll their eyes at, oh, great, another place that's serving elevated uh, street tacos. But I, I just always have loved it. Um, this was a middle recall. dish. It was a safe dish. So Did we know – did any of the critics – our judges even say one nice or bad. No. I mean, I don't remember his even getting a, a hearing. No, I, I don't think he even. I think it was. Uh, I think he just. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. 
You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas talked about his duck mole taco and then that was it there was no review so it was, um, it was it was a safe dish and it was perfectly in the middle so hats off to eugene i want to say uh, talk about lisa for a second because as you know we did her the dishonor of picking her neither of us picking her she is the free agent to be after next week's show for the second straight week tom she cooked a really good smart dish she did a spicy caramel duck that that wonderful um, kind of almost Vietnamese, I think, I think like cane, palm sugar plus uh, uh, fish sauce. I, I'm assuming that's what the caramel mm-hmm. duck was. And then with this pickled chili salad, um, she again, like Baltazar, she made a real plate. And I got to tell you, she's looking pretty strong. I think you and I might have, uh, you know, she might become the Pat Beverly of our uh, or no no not even Pat Beverly like you know the best undrafted would be um, Udonis Haslam yeah he's going to be the UD the Udonis Haslam of this competition because I got to tell you um it's uh, she she's cooking well uh, likewise who did a good dish um interesting to see not on the top because Gregory I just felt like juggernaut um, clearly did well and and his halibut and turmeric and tomato broth this is a man Tom it's like. Whenever I get stuck in the kitchen, I just need to summon my inner Gregory because this dish was perfect. He, ma- he makes, but it's even more like he makes achieving balance so effortless. Like when you see the description of his dish when it flashes on the screen, <laughs> you're always like, yeah, "Of course, yeah. right?" Like chilies, lime, and pineapple, <laughs> sweet, sour, spicy, sweet, sour, spicy, and you're looking at it and you're like, 
I want oh, that. Of course. Yeah. Like like all that all the guy does is fucking crush his protein, put three wonderfully mingling tastes uh, you know, kind of flavor bits, combines them with absolute cohesion, and voila. And like this is why the man is never on the bottom. This is why in his completely unheralded, I'm not even gonna be on the top three, he still cooks what appeared to be what Ruth Reichel called a perfect dish. So I just hats off, hats off to Gregory for being awesome, even when he's not recognized. I know. I, I had a lot of questions about the the top three, bottom three, and elimination in this episode. So we'll, let's keep plowing through it. Well, let's work. Let's work on the middles. Like, let's just go down the middles. Yeah. All right. So Brian Malarkey. Holy um, shit. <laughs> by the way, like clearly the heel of the competition wow. this year. I mean, I think it's fair to say. Um, a fried rice beef tartare with kimchi vinaigrette and fermented yolk egg um, actually sounds reasonably tasty, but the presentation was just looked like um, a, a, a slasher film. And Ruth Reichel, which I actually thought was her probably her most her worst her like most cutting insult of the day. We'll get to hers of Angelo, but like said, this is a dish that people who hate restaurants hate about. This. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. And that's exactly what I thought. It was overly tweezery, right? Um, and the way he presented it was another element that just made you roll your eyes where he just – he kept telling uh, Padma and the rest of them who would walk away from this – like prepared to be blown away, ladies, or like this oh, is going to be the best dish you taste all – it screamed insecurity. No. Like this is – And you know what it looked like, Tom? It looked like the surviving calf of the cow that was killed threw up all over the plate. It was, and and maybe he knew that. Maybe he had to add some gusto, some some uh, some you know expository to get past what it looked like. It was just I felt I was cringing because I thought we were being prepared for him getting kicked off the show this week because it just seemed like over the top, like every three seconds, it was another malarkey over the top um, description of his food. And I just thought, man, he is going to get kicked to the, to kick to the the curb on this one, but he wasn't. So he, um, despite his, his uh, commentary, he was not in the bottom or the top. Um, you know who uh, looked to have a reasonably successful dish? Just there probably probably wasn't bold enough. Um, Jen Carroll's cooking well, and she did a chickpea and navy bean soup with hominy, this lovely looking herb yogurt, and it kind of you know it kind of and then seemed to achieve, achieve a texture balance, a flavor balance, sort of cool hot um, combo. And I mean, she wasn't on the top, maybe because it just wasn't bold enough. I mean, she's cooking kind of essentially without a protein. Uh, it's still a hearty dish, but you know it. It, but she, uh, you know, got praise from the chefs, and um, you know, uh, it's cooking well. Tom, you're you got Jen Carroll. Yeah, uh, I I was a fan of this, and also I'm a fan of the whole like sour cream dollop in your chili or a yogurt in your in your soup. So I was a big fan of this one. I just think when you're doing a vegetable dish, uh, it's hard to win in Top Chef. Just because without the protein, I feel like in this episode it was it was hard to get into that top three. Obviously, when there's 14 contestants, it's hard to get in the top three anyway. But um, this was especially it seemed pretty hard for her to to crack into the top three without a protein. But a well executed dish. You know, it's funny. It's funny you say the herb yogurt. I've been cooking a lot with that in the last few years. What I've realized is on a night where I just want to roast beets or roast carrots, like when you roast kind of a rooty vegetable. 
um, and you just like blend up some yogurt with your favorite herbs, anything but cilantro basically, uh, maybe a little mint, yep. uh, tarragon, whatever, and you just kind of – it elevates your lazy ass roast carrots, honey roasted carrots that I just throw on the um, – you know, I roast in the oven and then you kind of put that on, like, you know, kind of pile that on. All of a sudden you look like Mr. Sheffy. Mm. And yet it's actually the easiest thing in the world. If you have a Vitamix, you just throw in like good Greek yogurt, full fat place and a bunch of herbs you like and you're there. And it also has that kind of green, little green little blast of color. So uh, I'm a big fan of the herb yogurt. It has made my very pedestrian food look more uh, sophisticated than it actually is. Uh, and then our final middler was uh, my girl, Karen, who I thought that was one where I was like, oh, shit. You know, that was an oh, shit. The um, ominous, I got to do, do 200 dumplings. I'm going to do 200. That was a, you know, I mean, and bless Sasto's heart. It was, it was a move out of his book. Like <laughs> I am going to, I'm going to stretch myself to the mere, to the, to the, to the, the, the ultimate depths of human capacity to make this dish. She does a pan fried cumin lamb dumpling, which oh, by yeah. way, looked fantastic. Oh, yeah. Really tough assignment, but she nailed it. And like degree of difficulty might've had one of the biggest successes of the day, though didn't have one of the three best bites of the day. Um, do we want to go top or bottom? Well, let's let's hit on Melissa real quick. The uh, the Szechuan. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's my last. I, I forgot about. What, Sorry, what did you think about that? So I I was kind of nervous for it because I think you can do a really good dish, but if Tom gets the chili pepper and just throws it off for her, um, that that might be uh, that might be. You know, that might be it for her. And I was nervous because I was like, man, what if you, you nail the dish, but someone just got too much spice in there? Someone had a Kevin Arnabitz, uh over the top, could not handle the spice there. And that might have sent her home. And I was I was nervous about it. But man, it looks like a great dish. And compared to Brian Malarkey, I feel like she had the superior uh, tartare. I think it's hard to place with 14 players with a beef tartare. Like I think it's something you can place with once you get down to six or seven. Yeah. Um, but, and by the way, uh, can you name the five spices in Chinese five spice? No. Uh, I knew I was able to name three of them. I knew it was anise, cinnamon, and like, like I, I thought it was like red peppercorns at Sichuan pepper. So I'll, I'll take credit for that one. I did not know that the other two were fennel seeds and cloves. Mm. Now I think you can mix and match. Like I think people would tell you, no, 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 five spice can, there are other theories and in, in schools on this, but I think that's the traditional five spice. Uh, and she did that five spice potato chips. I love that five spice uh, combo. I, I when I sometimes I do lazy chicken thighs. That's my rub. Mm. Um, and uh, but I, I think it's hard to place with beef tartare uh, with fourteen. There's always going to be three things more impressive. It's just a let's face it. It's degree of difficulty. The, the this chili pepper question is a good one, Tom. I, I I kind of got the sense that there's a little more patience. It's understanding that when you you know the the shishito every seventh pepper. There that there is a certain inherent risk mm. when cooking with that kind of stuff, and I think there's a certain patience that you're not going to get booted unless it was just off the charts. Plus, Padma is a notorious spice lover. Yep. So um, I was happy with Melissa's you know. dish. I feel like I would. Yeah. I would have. Uh, I I would have expected without Tom's response to it i kind of felt like she was going to be in the top three but the top three was super strong in this episode and we already talked about brian's dish let's talk about meanies i am just gonna crow about <laughs> tom haberstrom yeah. Yeah. i'm sorry is there a week in the seven that she has been a active chef in this show 
where she has not cooked one of the two or three best dishes, uh, not including, let's say, the quick fires. I believe she won. She did. She win quick fires. Am I correct? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I have to look at it. But, I'm, but yeah. Kevin, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, another amazing dish from her, and I think when you look at Nini as um, as a chef, she is five tool. She's got it. She on this particular dish, it felt like she was pulling in different flavors from di- different um, backgrounds. And so remind us what, what she the, cooked ma- the masa ball soup with the coconut milk. It was one of those things where when she said it, you're like, really? Just like Lisa at the at the uh, Whole Foods when she describes what she's gonna make. Lisa just goes with a very condescending, really? That's what you're going to make? But man, Kevin, this seemed like something you would just spoon up into your mouth. Um, it is – It's an, I, I think she might have and we um, we need top chef stats to kind of uh, uh, get us this, our, our, our buddy over there. She should tell us, does she have the highest average finish of any chef – I mean, I'm saying like, like, what is what is her average finish? All right, so in- she was middle round by round uh, last season. Uh, she was middle win win out. All right, but I want to I want to stipulate something. Those two wins came when there were what fifteen <laughs> yeah. people. There should so be a curve. Won- there should be right. There should be so extra words, points. Yes. So this is what it should be. It should be what percentile? What is her average percentile? Like if you finish. Third out of fifteen, that's you're in the twentieth percentile. Frankly, that's like winning, finishing second out of. That's better to me than finishing second out of eight. Yeah, that's a great right? point. Let- right. So, so I, I can't imagine there is a chef in seventeen seasons who has a higher percentile per week finish than Nini Win. I am feeling confident. This is a woman who literally has not laid one egg in seven weeks of competition. Uh, she has great instincts. She honored the – I mean it, what a masa ball soup. In fact, to me, she's the one person who really kind of – hey, if, if we're kind of fusing together Los Angeles kind of you know, Jewish-Mexican cooking. This was a – you know who this was a call out to? Katsuji? Yeah, that's kind of a very Katsuji kind of, kind of dish except the difference is, is she doesn't futz it up with all <laughs> these crazy shit. Like yeah. I'm going to do a masa ball soup. It's going to sing on its own. And it's going to be in a coconut ginger broth. It's going to be clean, but it's going to be rich. It's going to be wonderful. I am feeling great about Nini. We've talked about Voltaggio, Tom. Uh, you've got to be feeling good. Yeah, Voltaggio, just another another strong performance from him. And, you know, he comes in with a really sparkling resume. Someone, like I said, feels like he's above this show. Um, he's already competed on Top Chef Masters, but he comes in and just cooks his ass off. And, uh Again, in my opinion, I thought it was a risky move by him to do a dish, a Filipino dish that he admitted that he he wasn't experienced in, but he did it anyway. And so I felt like, ooh, this is a bad move by Brian. You got to do a dish that you know, but he did the components well. He was in the top three. I was surprised he was in the top three given the remarks about the other chefs and the other dishes, but he's in the top three along with Nini and – Oh man, Kevin, we are doing a great job drafting because my number one overall pick won last week's, and your number one overall pick won this week. Yeah, and we'll uh, Kevin won the episode. Kevin Gillespie, I thought, took an enormous risk. I was the 25, 30 minutes in, Tom. I am like, what is he doing? He is going to make a fried terrine ball. This is one of like, Kevin Arnovitz's cardinal sins. What, terrine and, and yeah, just uh, doing a terrine. Yeah, yeah. 
Torshan and Tareen. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm just thinking, okay, there are 200 people here. You're going to deep fry. It's just like it, – it's a hard quality control dish. Mm. Like you're going to deep fry 200 pork uh, mushroom blackcurrant terrine balls. I'm thinking he should have his head examined. How do you pull this <laughs> off? And you know, I think Ruth Reichel, bless her heart. By the way, Ruth Reichel, veteran of, of LA Times, New York Times, and I think was the last ever editor at Gourmet and um, just hilarious – Wonder. I mean, I just love the way she characterizes food. You know, it, it, she somehow anthropomorphizes other. These dishes don't talk to each other. Yes. Um. Or, or it's just she's so brilliant at this. And and as she said, I have the same impression. She's like, this is going to be a clunker, or this is going to be a disaster. Um. He also so he does this fried terrine ball, lovely little uh, gem of a, of a thing, and he puts it on the plate, even though it's brown. Um. It somehow kind of shines, and then there's a, a kind of a uh, there's there's Granny's apple butter, which which Ruth Reichel uh, says that he should get bottled, um, which, which clearly warmed his heart because you know grandmother's recipe, you got to love that, and he just nails it: roast pork, mu- mushroom, and black currants. It is apparently the bite of the night. It out, it outdoes the the truly formed kind of Gregory Voltaggio uh, Lisa kind of fully formed dishes. It does. It, it just beats everything, and uh, he's overcome. This is a man who who's been fighting cancer for the better part of two years, and uh, it's wonderful. I, I, I'm still a softy, Tom. Mm. I'm still a softy. I, I, I love that reaction. The, the main reason I want to win is to prove I'm not dying. What a line from Kevin Gillespie, and what a performance in this episode. Um, it was. It was a again a risky a risky dish to do live for 200 people because i'd imagine Ooh. some of those bites it might be searing hot inside right for, from the deep fryer i was just nervous for him but he comes and, out and, on top. You know, it's not something you want it's not something you want room temperature either no no so the 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 margin of error on this margin of error it's just so razor razor thin that he was working with here and he came out on top so kevin congratulations on this win it is like you said winning a competition this early in the competition an elimination challenge is really hard to do especially in top chef all-stars so congratulations to kevin so the bottom we had eric who i I think it's understood was kind of safe i mean he was he ranked 13th but a bit of distance ahead of 14th and 15th uh, or no, I'm sorry, twelfth, but a bit of distance between thirteen him and thirteen. Yeah, he was in the bottom three, but it really felt like this was a bottom two. You know, and I also wonder—I don't even know if he's there, given Malarkey and some of the others. If it sounds like this, the braised cabbage, which is one of those things that almost has to be perfectly mushy, and I mean, I, we all love, like there's a miso braised cabbage that um the folks at uh, Vernick do um in Philadelphia that I love and. Braised cabbage is one of those things. And I think Ruth Reichel said it. That just, or I think Tom maybe said you can't have any crunch left. And I just wonder if he, if the if the braised cabbage is cooked a little longer, he's probably not even down there. Yeah, uh, it looked like a scallop was perfectly cooked. Like it was just one of those things where there was a technical error, uh, cabbage that wasn't fully braised to the satisfaction of the judges. Um, and there, and I think it did. It looked according to the. And it, this is one of it's hard to know if you're not tasting it but it uh the judges seem to suggest there wasn't enough kind of connective tissue with the dish yep was that the line that it, or was that the dish that inspired the line from ruth that they're not talking to each other the ingredients are not talking to each other might have been yeah, i think that might have been and it might have been the nachos it might have been that yeah uh, or, or they didn't say hello or I, I don't, some, <laughs> yeah. some some di- some part of a food is not 
you know, fully anthropomorphized with in, in talking or or screwing I, or whatever it is that the other thing. I thought I thought Brian Malarkey was for sure going to take his place in yeah. the bottom three. What a surprise there, Kevin. Holy this this bottom two, the lines from the judges, it it felt like both of them might be going home. Yeah, I mean Stephanie, I was very disappointed in because I, I feel like she's had a nice run. I, I think you know my book on her was she kind of got ejected unfairly from the last competition. So you know this is a chef that hasn't cooked poorly really ever in the history of the show. Um, it was a terrible decision. Uh, Indian nachos again. It's just also it's just so pedestrian. Like fill in the it's like Mad Libs. Uh, nachos of some other. Yeah, you know I mean look, unless if it's you're a doing nachos. A soup, challenge right, right? like hi we're at, we're at rupp arena cook stadium yes. food for stadium people or hey it's the super bowl party top chef edition create a snack that you know a bunch of like frat boys want to eat you know like i yeah there's times and places for you know essentially you know for that kind of food and look i'm not saying every there's nothing better than good nachos. I agree. Like, but it's just such a weird choice, uh, especially when you're kind of doing again. Now you're putting yourself in a position where you have to be, you have to be a baker. You got to be like a bread guy or, or a bread gal, and it's just like, come on. I mean, and that's she owned be it. She said two words. I don't even know if they're two words, but she said "wicked oops," which I just burst out laughing because that is probably the most Bostonian mass hole thing to say is wicked oops. It was great. Steph owned it. She said, I screwed up. Uh, I'm sorry. She figured it out mid meal where she was like, Oh no, I I'm preparing Indian food for Padma. Can I just say bad decision? That wasn't the issue, right? Like, like Ruth said it herself. It it was a dry. And Tom does not like things that eat dry. And look, if you're going to mean that was sort of the weird thing. If you told me, okay, the assignment is Indian nachos, my first reaction is, what? But if, like, I got to do it, I mean, chutney. That's what chutney's for. Yeah. I mean, chutney is the moist little, just kind of acidic, moist burst in an otherwise dry dish. Like, like I'm shocked there wasn't a chutney. It wasn't just, like, this idea that Ruth, hey, it's like, you got to have something. Or, you know what you do? You do, hello, herbed yogurt. You're doing Indian, <laughs> yeah. fine. Yeah. You know, do a and as much as I hate to say it, like a cilantro yogurt, it's not my thing, but but do an herbed yogurt. Like do something, as as you know, Padma said. It just needs something, anything. But that was the thing. I mean, to me, yeah, cooking Indian for Padma, conceptual error. But tactical error is not giving the thing They described just, it as it didn't taste of anything. Of anything. And what? Um, now I'm still I, maybe this is a mulligan. I still think Stephanie's got pretty good instincts. <laughs> oh, um, but we finally get to our last chef, uh, the chef that was eliminated. Chef, I think uh, if I can take a little, I told you so. Like a chef, yeah. I think last week I said was not long for this competition. You're right. Um, seems like a prince of a guy, by the way. Just chill in the kitchen. Everyone likes him. Yep. Um, Angela seems like just a swell dude. But um, my favorite line. Not just like my favorite line in this episode, my favorite line, I think, in any since since Bourdain, may he rest in peace, has been on the show and on the judges' table. That tuna died in vain. <laughs> I'm so glad you I think our title of this episode, Jade, 
The tuna that died in vain is the title of this episode. This tuna died in vain. I have it circled and underlined. Or is that a spoiler? It might be. A, is that a sp- maybe we can put oh. it as wicked oops in the in the yeah. headline. But but this tuna died in vain, Ruth. Like bravo, like like straight up. That was an I'm incredible. Sorry, line. but this tuna died in vain. I just love. You know what I love? Old Jewish women who grew up <laughs> in Greenwich Village, like like. Bless her heart. I mean, she's always been, you know, we talked about Silverton and gold. I mean, what I love about this season, Tom, is just all the true, like, human institutions of culinary America. Like, mm. gold, Silverton, Reichel, they're all on their game. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. So, Angelo does this turmeric coconut broth that apparently is so sickly sweet that Tom Calicchio asked him if, when he was at Jitlada being inspired, whether there was a pastry <laughs> chef there. Yeah. Oh, Earth. Uh, by the way, there is no pastry chef, to my knowledge, at Chitlada. Yeah. And I think um, he knows that, too. So – and then he put a, a piece of uh, kind of raw tuna, maguro, that uh, Padma apparently liked. In fact, I got to tell you, Tom, as I was – as they were going to the suspense, I'm like, you know what? Padma liked his tuna just enough to save him. Stephanie's going home. I could not agree more. I had in my notes – Angelo gone by wow. I thought Steph for sure was getting sent home because in this dish, like you said, Padma actually spoke glowingly about a component in his dish, right? I don't think there was one even lukewarm positive remark about Stephanie's dish. There was nothing in this episode that made me believe that anyone other than Stephanie was going home. And yet Angelo goes home and it seemed, you know, when Ruth says this tuna died in vain, like, man, that is, that is such a haymaker of a comment, but still I, I, I'm trying to think of anything in that episode that would lead you to believe that Stephanie's dish had something uh, worth eating in there. Also, this is a theory I have and tell me to what extent you think it might be true. I have a theory that until we get to like, truly like a vote from the judges that if Padma kind of likes it, that it like more so than Tom or any of the other judges that like if Padma wants to pass it ahead, that it gets passed ahead. Like, like that, that in other words, no, but that Tom's doesn't make objections sense on this one, can though. be overruled, but it Padma, right. And this defies. Yes. That. So that was another, my point is yes. oh, that was another you. reason I thought, yeah, I'm not articulating this well. I've always been under the assumption that if Padma's okay with it, it ain't going home. Mm. Now, if Tom's not okay with it, it might go home. If any of the other guest judges are okay with it, it might, you know, um, it might not go home. But when Padma kind of pa- gives a dish a pass, that it she's got the gap. That was she, the other thing. She's the right. One, like she yeah. ultimately, you don't cross her. Like she will be the judge, jury, and executioner at the end. Maybe that's not true. I, I was stunned about this, and Ste- Stephanie uh, survives. Angelo, despite a. Uh, uh, solidly seasoned raw tuna uh he gets sent home uh for an overly sweet dish and it's very rare that you get an entree that is overly sweet um so sweet that in fact in the last chance kitchen episode uh chef mike uh just described it was like that would have been too sweet for a dessert that's how how uh, sweet it was so um angelo he gets a mi- minus five for this episode to to round out the scoring, Kevin. Real quick, uh, you picked up some ground. You picked up some ground. Yeah. You uh, you had, of course, the winning chef Kevin Gillespie, Nina Al- Nini also in the top three. Um, uh, Stephanie, of course, 
didn't get you any numbers there with a zero. Brian Malarkey in the middle. For me, I just got a lot of solid uh, innings. I says I had some innings eater inning eaters in this one. I had Gregory Gordet with two points, Eric in the bottom three zero points, Brian Voltaggio in the top three, and then Melissa, Jen, Leanne, Jamie in the middle. So I just kind of accumulated a bunch of points for being in the middle. So I had fifteen points in this episode. You had fourteen points. Uh, it wasn't essentially. Uh, a route like the first round. So right now the scoring is 41 for team Tom 24 for team Kevin. So I guess you didn't close the gap. Uh, you actually didn't close the gap, but if this w- round two was, was uh, much closer than round one. So, so oh. far out to a commanding lead. So interesting enough. Um, the top four contestants are in order. Kevin, Gregory, Voltaggio, Nini. So yeah. basically draft picks one, two, three, and five are in the top four. And I think for the first time in a while, and I think it has a lot to do, Tom, with the fact that we've seen these competitors before. I yeah. mean, I think it's a much easier uh season to handicap from the outset just because we know who these people are. But uh there is a certain uh, there's a certain symmetry to the draft order and you know what's going on in the scorecard yeah and and angelo uh gets sent home and he was one of our last picks and lisa hasn't been blowing the doors off of people she hasn't been bad either but uh so far definitely more correlated than we have in the past where like tyler anderson my number one pick wins the oh first- i'm sorry i i forgot jamie lynch i'm sorry let me correct myself yeah he's in there too but you know what yeah. like i i'm with you i think our our um our, our drafting so far has been pretty top notch. I'm proud of our efforts so far. And watch next week, Gregory, Brian, and uh, and Kevin will be in the bottom. Right. Real quick, last chance kick. Yes, you watched it. Love Providence. Love that place. Um, as a wedding gift, my friend uh, John So, well, you may or may not have met. We took uh, a couple that we're, we're tight with. As a wedding gift, we were just like. I mean, I could send us another chef's knife or some freaking thing off the register. And we were just like, why don't we take – because we didn't go to the wedding. It was like 10 people in the Sea Islands of Georgia. Like no one went. And we just took them. We called ahead. They gave us a chef's table for four. I brought two bottles of wine, one red and white that I just absolutely love. I told them in advance. We got just – they did it up for us. It was just fun. And also there's a couple that we just adore. We just had the best three and a half hours of dining. Among the best three and a half hour meals of my life has been at Providence for that. And it was just, and it was one, it was one of those things where you're spending a ton of money, but it was like, hey, a round trip ticket to Savannah, you know, three nights at an expensive place in the Sea Islands, a rental car, well, everything else. It was like, oh, this is much better. I mean, it's a, it's three and a half hours, and b, as a gift plus all those other things, I'm coming out ahead. And unlike most weddings, I actually get to enjoy the gift itself. So, um. But you had a good time at my favorite places. You had a good time. I don't know what I'm. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm saying is like, like, but my gift <laughs> to you, which I think was probably a chef's knife, this is what I get everybody as a Japanese chef's knife. Like, in other words, I don't get use out of it. Whereas a, a dinner, it's like, hey, yeah. I'm there. I'm enjoying it with them. So, um, of course, I had a good time at your wedding. But uh, anyway, so Providence is just for folks who know. It's just, I mean, he's just talk about technical, brilliant cooking. I think he was the number one restaurant on Jonathan Gold's list. I think like three years wow. in a row. In a city that's got a lot of good restaurants. So Joe Sasto, Giant Clam, also known as Geoduck, uh, which I did not know. 
I've seen that word and I've seen giant clam. I did not know that. I think they're the same thing. Yeah, the gooey duck um, is not a pretty looking thing. It is. Yeah, it is. I said the geoduck, duck. Yeah, gooey duck is a big schlong of a piece of seafood. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? I mean, it is just weird looking. Um, Angelo makes the cardinal error right from the beginning, Tom. Right from the beginning. This is a man who doesn't understand the challenge. Like they're bringing you to the best seafood restaurant in America, arguably, and you're showcasing eggs. Of course. Scrambled like, I egg. called it. Come on, man. Like I know you're trying way, to do something just a little bit more uh, refined, just something a little bit more focused. But come on, the scrambled eggs. I'm sure it was actually. By the way, I mean I, I did say it as really I was good. watching. Yeah. Oh, I bet that was a delicious bite. But that's not the challenge. That's not the challenge. The challenge is highlight a piece of seafood. You're going up against a guy who gets the who chooses the highest degree of difficulty. You're, you're going to lose if, if, if he basically – I said it kind of watching. I was like, if Joe does anything above a B, B plus, there's nothing Angelo can do to eggs, cream, and caviar that's going to win him a challenge at Providence. It's just you don't – like, you know, what's the Levitard thing? You don't understand the show? Yeah. You don't understand like, you don't get the, the show? You don't get the you show. Don't get the show. You don't get the show. You don't get the show. From sh- a veteran. The show is – Angelo's a veteran yeah. on Top Chef. So it feels like in this Last Chance Kitchen, he should know, hey, think about the challenge and execute the dish that the challenge is presented. So I, I'm with you. And, and the other thing about caviar is there's no preparation of the caviar. It's you take a dollop out of the caviar and then you put it on your plate. So there's not even any any technicality, I don't think, uh, in that. So – I I was puzzled by the dish, and like they said, it was really delicious. Um, the uh, the the presentation looked very nice. It seemed like it was an elevated scrambled egg, which you know it sounds delicious, right? But oh, when I'm sure it was delicious, and if the challenge is make breakfast, yep. do a do a, a an elevated breakfast dish or or a it might be in the top you know, three today, yeah. right? Absolutely, because I mean, what a great bite! I mean, I would love that coming out, you know on the side of my like good homemade granola yogurt and and, like that would just be a great rich accompaniment but it's just not what you're doing when the assignment is showcase seafood yeah and i uh, i I wrote this down colicchio didn't have a huge zinger of a pun in the episode but on the last chance kitchen episode he said joe you're turning the gooey duck into towelfish yeah, when he dropped it on the floor, that was actually brilliant. It's like, wow, Tom, that was brilliant. It's like, a, like, like a little softball, and he just cranked it over uh, over the green monster, man. That was amazing. Yeah, so I, I'm happy that I've learned a new thing, geoduck. Yeah, um, a word I've seen but never heard spoken. Though I am familiar with the giant clam, and I think that is what we know as when you get like giant. I'm assuming, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, that if I go to a really good sushi joint and giant clam is what I'm ordering with the shiso, that is. Geoduck, I'm assuming, yeah. but uh, I'm not sure. So Joe Sasto prevails with his gooey duck with um, uh, with that puree, which Chef Mike didn't really care for. And there was some disagreement about having the puree underneath versus what Joe went with, with it, which is smothering it on top of the dish. Um, but from the actual precise uh, cut of the, the gooey duck, I feel like he was uh, – he had the most complete dish and it showed the most – uh, I, I would say thought and actual skill. So he survives. Um, and Kevin, you have t- the two chefs that are in the bottom that have been eliminated uh, are on your team, Kevin. And they're 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 
there are a couple holes in your boat that you need to plug so far, but it's early in the competition. Last chance kitchen is, I think we said it last episode, last season, Kevin, but I really enjoy last chance kitchen. I feel like it's, it's gotten so much better over the years. And I, I feel like it's, it's not, it's not as must watch TV, must see TV as the episode itself, but it is right there with it at 11 minutes, 12 minutes, which is very, very, uh, the perfect amount of time on Last Chance Kitchen. And I just very really, snackable, very snackable. I think it's it's a great. So for people who are just skipping out on Last Chance Kitchen because of the I don't know the barrier of entry to entry by just having to go online and googling it, like like you got to watch it. It's good, and Joe Sasto gets his redemption and he survives another day. Yeah, I mean, my issue is going to be when you start, you know, when when my team is much smaller than your team in this competition, I just have fewer opportunities to pick up points. So, uh, I need some more tens. I need, I need Gillespie and Nini and, and possibly Karen to bang me out some wins because, uh, that's my only way back into this thing. I mean, I, I'm not that far behind, but I am a little concerned, uh, because you know, now it's, uh, now it's seven on five and, you know, maybe I pick up a point in last chance, but, uh, do, do you remember yeah. the trade proposal I gave you last week? No, remind I think me. it was Angelo and Stephanie for Melissa. And you turn it down. So I would have netted eight. Yeah. Already. Yeah. And you would, I would not- have netted eight because <laughs> it, it's negative six to two. Man. Um, feeling good about that. And- <laughs> Feel good about no, that. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So if you, if, if that trade went through, uh, I would have, I would absorbed an eliminated chef and Stephanie who had one of the biggest whiffs we've had so far this season. So, hey, I'm, she can, I'm she more can confident than Stephanie though. Yeah, like uh, I think uh, if I'm even, I think Brian Malarkey might not be long for this competition. Also, I will say this something. I think Leanne Wong might not be long for this competition. You're right. No, we'll see. We'll see. Um, Kevin, we'll what see. an episode this was. I really I thought this was a, a great week on Top Chef and uh, a wonderful tribute to Jonathan Gold. But uh, I'm excited for what episode three comes. For Tom Habistro. This is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives.